Previously on the Eloquent in the Room podcast. This is episode 2 of 2020, An Orgasmic Oddity. If you didn't listen to episode 1, please stop now and go back because this is a sequential series and besides, if you don't, you'll hurt my feelings and nobody wants that. So, where to next? Well, we have to go deeper, don't we? Here's the point at which we take a slight psychological detour to speculate about what women's orgasmic life might have looked like if women had never been acculturated to stray from their authentic inner nature. From the moment we're born, we are bombarded with social cues to behave in certain ways. It begins with boys being treated differently to girls. Our families push agendas on us regarding modesty, personal hygiene, Modes of dress, the toys were given to play with. Then fairy tales, religion, TV shows, movies, songs and commercials spin their yarns about what supposedly makes us attractive to each other. What it should feel like to fall in love. Encouraging us to be competitive and jealous while continually driving home the narrative that our main goal in life is to find a mate and have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. See what I did there? All this acculturation filters how we then respond to our natural impulses, which can then exaggerate or repress our sexual identity, as well as give rise to so-called kinks and fetishes. I say so-called because this is obviously subjective. You know what they say. It's only ever kinky the first time. But at the end of the day... Sex triggers hormone-flavoured emotions, whether it's deep love or crippling shame. Sex triggers stuff. There's so much to unpack here, guys. I could talk till the cows come home about how acculturation also affects our relationships, self-esteem, mental health, which bodes well for future podcasts, but for now, I'm just going to keep drilling down to the essence of what it is to be a homo sapien. The goal is to create a more level playing field. Real talk, this journey to the centre of our earthiness is a meandering one. I want to deconstruct orgasm and then put it back together again better than you. To paraphrase Douglas Adams, I attack everything in life with a mix of extraordinary genius and naive incompetence and it's often difficult to tell which is which. Okay, let's do this. Content warning. This introduction has another content warning. What am I not seeing? What am I not? What seeing? What am I not 
saying? What am I not what saying? Doing? What am I not doing? What am I not feeling? What am I not resisting? What am I not accepting? What am I not comprehending? Why am I not seeing? Why am I not appreciating? This is not the future I signed up This is not the future I signed up for. Signed up for. And we're back. <laughs> Hi there. I'm Rose Cooper and welcome back to The Eloquent in the Room, where we uncover our cognitive biases, bringing peace and love to the cosmos. That's right. A girl can dream. This is episode 2 of 2020, An Orgasmic Oddity. This episode is entitled, The Planet of the Babes. Guess what? 2001, A Space Odyssey came out in 1968, which was the same year another cult classic was released. Barbarella. And yes, Planet of the Apes. I know, right? What are the odds? Three iconic sci-fis that all dripped with thought-provoking social commentary were all released in the same year. In another spooky coinkadink, both films are set in a galaxy far, 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 far away in the future, but only set a mere three centuries apart. Dudes, the fifth millennia is going to be awkward. But we're going to stick a pin in the planet of the apes for a bit. And stick with babes, because Barbarella jumped into my head this week as a great example of authentic sexual behavior. I recently asked my eldest son, who is in his early 30s, what he thought of when I mentioned the phrase authentic sexuality. His answer was, what the fuck are you talking about? I tried to explain, but he just couldn't pick up what I was putting down. I wasn't sure if it was because he's a millennial male and I'm a Gen X slash boomer hybrid chick or just because he's too smart to bother intellectualizing something that for him is so straightforward, which I sometimes envy because my overthinking can keep me up at night. Anyway, our opinions often differ in the realms of existentialism, so I'm neither perturbed or thwarted. Fuck. Thwarted. (laughs) It's one of the coolest things about doing a podcast as a writer. I love words and the way they fit together when written, but man, now I get to say them out loud. It's a whole new level of satisfying. Is it ASMR for you? Because it is for me. So yeah, authenticity. It's downright arrogant of me in a way to just flagrantly appropriate a concept like this because... What's authentic to my sexuality is not going to be true of anyone else, let alone everyone else. But I'm fighting a multi-headed hydra here in order to help women overcome the perceived obstacles that block them from fully succumbing to their sexual potency. So, sorry not sorry, (laughs) for the record, the dictionary definition of authentic is not false or copied, genuine, real. And my favourite part of the definition, representing one's true nature or beliefs, true to oneself. 
as I said last time, because of certain events in my past, it was relatively easy for the patriarchy to hijack my my mind and body. I had experienced childhood trauma, so my self-worth was up for grabs. I recognize Stockholm Syndrome when I see it, and I'm seeing it everywhere I look. And the conversations I have with sexually timid young women certainly bears this out. So yeah, Barbarella. For the uninitiated, the film was adapted from an adult graphic novel produced in 1962 by Jean-Claude Forrest. I may well have just lost a whole bunch of listeners in the stampede to Google that. It's set in a self-consciousnessless future where people greet each other with the word love instead of hello. Oh my God, you had me at love. (laughs) Can we make that a thing? I really want that to be a thing. Can someone make it so? Uh, Earthlings in the uh, 42nd century had banished sex. Instead, they distilled the exultant exchange between two humans into a pill. Partners would drop a pill and sit opposite each other with their hand raised and their palms pressed together, looking deeply into each other's eyes while remaining still. Watching the steam rise from his collar and her hair curl up into tiny little ringlets made me more than a little bit jealous that we don't have that pill yet. Anyway, back to the um, plot. Uh, Barbarella is sent on an important mission to a backwards planet. As soon as she lands, she gets into a jam. Luckily, a human-looking man rescues her from impending peril, and when she offers to give him some sort of reward, he suggests they get a little jiggy with it. Ah, men, predictable much? (laughs) This idea distresses her at first because she didn't bring any pills. Naturally, he asks, why did you give up sex on your planet? She answers, because it proved to be distracting and a danger to maximum efficiency and because it was pointless to continue when other substitutes for ego support and self-esteem were made available. Huh. Yeah. Doesn't that just snap your brain? He convinces her to try it the old-fashioned way. Cut to a very chill barb with bed hair and a shit-eating grin and a reluctance to get out of bed. Or the fur she's laying on. Then she proceeds to kick it old school with every Tom, Dick and Harry for the rest of the film. Go barb. Um, Jane Fonda, who inhibited... Jane Fonda, who played her in the film, was quoted as saying... At the time, my first priority for Barbarella was to keep her innocent. The character is not a vamp and her sexuality is not measured by the rules of our society. She's not being promiscuous, but she follows her the natural reaction of another type of upbringing. She's not a so-called sexually liberated woman either. That would mean rebellion against something. She is different. She was born free. I know, right? Utopia. At the end of the movie, the bad guy, Duran Duran, locks her in a relentless pleasure machine designed to kill. Several small deaths later, 
and our Tupperware bra-wearing crusader short-circuits the thing. High five, girlfriend. Hang on. That was better. Barbarella's sexuality, to my mind, was authentic. Her lack of preconceptions and inhibitions enabled her to feel whatever she felt without adding any shame or guilt to her arousal spectrum. Do you like that? Arousal spectrum? I'm going to have to trademark it, I think, because I'm pretty sure I'm going to use it a lot. Shame is on the arousal spectrum because of religion. Sex was made taboo. If it wasn't, then I dare say porn empires would crumble. I am keen to take the boo out of taboo. Or boo, 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 which just leaves tar which is baby talk for thank you. You're welcome. When the sexual revolution happened in the 60s and the notion of free love and flower power tried to take root, no pun intended, it was immediately commercially co-opted in a highly gratuitous way, which I can sum up in two words. Sex sells. It would be easy to blame men for everything, but... Capitalism and corporate greed corrupts absolutely. It just happens to stand up to pee most of the time. I'd like to think it's not too late to change attitudes. Do I sound preachy? It's hard to avoid. I just get so pissed off. The age of Aquarius did not fully realise itself. As camp as it was, Barbarella still makes a relevant statement about where we thought we were heading and reminds us how much we lost the plot, shoving women into a corner marked siren, temptress, luring men to their inexorable doom. Sexually liberated women are still often depicted in film and TV as either empty-headed bimbos, soulless man-eaters, desperate homewreckers, or the most recent trope, career women. More or less saying women who like sex are emulating men. Women's sexual freedom was labelled promiscuity. Men's freedom remained label-free as we collectively patted them on the back and metaphorically sucked their dicks by constantly reinforcing these tropes as the natural order of things. Bitch, please. (laughs) I remember when a friend of mine and I first became regulars at our local pub. We were both underage, of course. Guys would attempt to pick us up. If we weren't interested, we'd politely decline. Some dickheads would then submit their objection to our rejection with one of three insults. They'd either accuse us of being frigid, lesbians, or just the stock standard female insult, slut. Soon we learned to cut the middleman and if some guy would want to sit with us when we weren't interested we'd just say sorry Sorry, we're we're frigid frigid lesbian sluts so yeah fucking double standards have the times changed that much social media is peer pressure on steroids i was bullied in high school for being a late developer and then i became a slut That word always made me laugh, even though I didn't possess a high emotional IQ in those days. The fact that men were called studs and women were called sluts always struck me as fucked up. So I would usually laugh if anyone ever called me that. But if social media had been around in my youth, I'm not sure I would have survived. 
For generations, women have been repressed and vilified for enjoying sex, which reminded me of another social commentary-themed sci-fi classic, 1998's Pleasantville. It juxtaposed the nihilistic 90s with the uptight 1950s. Toby Maguire plays a high school kid who is so keen to drown out the noise of perennial doom on the news, he loses himself in the 1950s family show Pleasantville, where life is predictable, squeaky clean and always in black and white, literally and figuratively. With the aid of a magic remote control, he and his sister, played by with, <laughs> with, 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 Reese Witherspoon, are accidentally transported into Pleasantville as cast members. While Toby does his best to blend in, Reese goes off the hook, undermining the town's drab existence by introducing them to independent thought and sexual freedom. Bit by bit, the town and the townsfolk turn to colour. Pleasantville's mom is exceptionally played by Joan Allen. In a cute switcheroo, she asks Reese to tell her about sex. Afterwards, she's seen looking dejected because her husband is such a straighty 180. So Reese gives her the other good news. Later, Mom is seen preparing for her bath. As she undresses, she admires herself in the mirror, seeing herself naked for the very first time. Then she steps into the tub, relaxes and lets herself explore. It's beautifully shot. We only see her face and hear her exclaim, Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Repeatedly. At the climax, it cuts to the monochromatic tree in the front yard as it suddenly bursts into golden flames. Perceptions can cloud authenticity. Repression kept her in the dark, but her curiosity was innate and unstoppable. Her discoveries are in stark contrast to her uptight husband, played by William H. Macy, and not just about the sex. The colour changes highlight other social issues like bigotry and artistic and literary freedom. While he fears, he fears the changes, her hungry mind is in love with all the possibilities represented by colour. Oh my god, I need to see it again in its entirety. Netflix, make it so. By the way, when I was refreshing my memory with clips from Pleasantville on YouTube, I read the comments section under the bath scene clip and most people were saying their high school teachers fast-forwarded through that bit. What? <laughs> then there was one recent comment from a mother who said she came to refresh her memory because she wanted to double-check if it was as racy as she remembered. She was relieved she double-checked and then decided not to watch it with her 17-year-old daughter and definitely not her 14-year-old son. I, uh, I couldn't help myself. I had to comment, pretty much begging her not to keep her daughter in the dark about anything. She's not already experimenting. Isn't it better for her to know rather than be prey to predatory males because of her ignorance? She replied. She said, you're probably right, but she's still my baby. Uh, excuse me while I just check my watch. Oh, look. Almost half past 2020. 
Oh my God, this scene is so tasteful. No gratuitous nudity. And I hate gratuitous nudity. I'm definitely going to do a whole fucking podcast about gratuitous nudity because it shits me that much. Um, she's middle. She's a middle-aged woman. I mean, the only hint that something's even happening below the, below the surface of the water is her saying, my goodness, and cutaways to the black and white floral wallpaper blossoming into living colour and a flaming tree. Speaking of masturbation, that brings me somewhat ironically to the subject of hands-free orgasms. No prizes this week. I just really love that sound effect. So yeah, who knew I'd be smacking you in the face with that all of a sudden? I like to keep you guessing. But I did throw out a little teaser last time regarding my lab orgasm. The puns just write themselves. So that survey I've been circulating was multiple choice. As I said in episode one, when I asked women what triggered their first orgasm, they were given a selection of well-known ways like masturbation and sex. And I also added a few alternative ways which I have experienced orgasm like kissing and while asleep, among other ways which I'm keeping for a surprise, okay? When I filled it out, I had a choice to mention the first waking one which for the record occurred during intercourse with clitoral stimulation by my first legit boyfriend around my 17th birthday. That was a bit like sex Cluedo, wasn't it? But the fact is, when I had that first one, it made me realise that I'd been having them in my sleep since I was a child because it felt like simultaneously like a crazy, new, amazing thing while feeling eerily familiar at the same time. And I wasn't the only one that selected that option, orgasm as a, while asleep and orgasmic kissing also registered a few votes. <laughs> I hope that I have well and truly proven my point regarding clitoral and even vaginal stimulation, not being the absolute be all and end all of orgasm. Think about it. Female nocturnal orgasm knocks every other so-called fact about female orgasm on its head. Recent studies claim it's not super common, but it is finally being spoken about as a thing worth speaking about. If anyone can tell me that female wet dreams got a mention in their sex ed class at school, I'd be thrilled to hear it. Your Honour... It's time to call our second murder suspect to the stand. School sex education. My survey asked where women obtained their education. 9% said porn or erotic literature. I have a strong hunch blokes stats would be quite different. 13% said their parents. 21% said friends at school. 41% said trial and error. 15% said school sex ed. I'm not sure where the friends at school got their info, which could have been from parents or porn or sex ed, but there you have it. 15% probably reflects not just the quality of the sex ed, but also the scarcity of it. I also asked where everyone had heard the, first heard the word orgasm. 35% had a brain fart and don't remember. 26% said from film or TV. 2% said parents. 15% said women's magazines. No surprises there. 10% uh, 
10% said either friends or partners, 5% said porn, one person, one one person said sex education was the first time they heard the word orgasm. One of the really stupid arguments against comprehensive sex ed being taught at schools is that it's deemed a parent's job to teach their kids. But for reasons I'll never understand, a lot of parents are like the aforementioned she's still my baby lady. 41% said trial and error. You can't see it, but I'm death staring my peers right now. 41% said trial and error. 41% said trial and error. Yeah, I feel like I have to keep repeating that statistic until someone hears it. (laughs) Uh, It could be said that limited education is better than no education at all, but we trust our teachers and our parents and our friends to give us the straight dope. So... Education needs to be addressed as a huge culprit in suppressing women's orgasmic potential. Ostensibly, the first sex ed talk at school is there to explain puberty and where babies come from. Anyway, at my first sex ed class when I was 12, boys got the nod as sexual beings with inconvenient hard-ons and wet dreams, but the girls' side of things were always boobs, pubes, fallopian tubes, periods, conception and childbirth. I basically just... Went there, learned a bunch of new words, but nothing really else of value. Um, I first actually read the word orgasm when I was about 12. Uh, The controversial Little Red School Book, which had been banned upon its release, somehow made it into my hot little hands. It was written by a couple of Dutch guys in the early 70s and is essentially an anarchic manifesto for school-aged teens. (laughs) It really sticks it to adults. Don't listen to them. They are paper tigers. Do what you want. This is how to be careful doing it. So when I did get hold of it, I immediately skipped to the info about drugs and sex. This is what it says about orgasm. Okay, I've got that book in my hot little hand. Um, It also goes to great trouble to explain things in commonly used words at the time. So, (laughs) steal yourself for the language. Um, Orgasm, having an orgasm is usually called coming. When a boy's prick is excited enough, he eventually comes. Fluid or sperm, actually you're wrong, both counts, it's semen. Fluid or sperm spurts out of his prick and he knows then that he has reached the height of his pleasure. A boy's body only starts producing sperm when he reaches the age of puberty. This is usually sometime between the ages of 11 and 15, but it's not at all abnormal for it to be earlier or later. Coming is less obvious for a girl. The feeling is different for each girl. It can be intense pleasure or excitement or a feeling of relief. Some girls come a lot faster than others. <laughs> Fuck you. Um, it may take some experience for a girl to find out what coming really is for her. Don't you love how vague that is? It's 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 to me it reeks of yeah, I don't think they're really having orgasms. They're like, you know, they just got their own version of something and it comes in different ways and I don't know, it's just such a weird explanation. Okay, wet dreams. Boys can have orgasms while they're asleep at night. 
This is called having wet dreams. Many boys have them. They're quite normal. Okay, yep. Sorry. That's, that's, that's all that's written there about wet dreams. Call yourself anarchists. Actually, I called them anarchists. Anarchist Skywalker. So they also had uh, info on child molesters. Um, they headed the chapter um, Dirty Old Men, and it's really shit. I could probably devote an entire podcast to the Little Red School book. I had it when I was 12, like it, it passed through my hands, but then that was it. It was lost. And the one I have now is an original copy of the little book. Um, I say that, it sounds obvious, but, but when I got a, my, a hold of a copy at the time, back in 1970, whatever it was, um, it was in a newspaper format, weirdly. Um, but I found the Little Red School book, um, valued at $1.75 on the cover, it says, um, at a market stall about 12 years ago or something. I was amazed. Anyway, still on sex ed. Uh, 27 years later, in 1999, I went to the sex ed talk presented at the school attended by my then 12 and 9-year-old sons. I expected big things. Threesome jokes were mentioned in virtually every primetime sitcom on TV by this time. In 1995, a full episode of Roseanne was none too subtle about her son's puberty. It was hilarious. Um, the overhead projections were a little bit more graphic, I'll give them that, um, but it was still unbalanced regarding gender-specific information. And the presenter had the temerity to editorialise. When talking to the boys, she said, you might be dreaming about Pamela Anderson and that will make you get excited and cause a wet dream. It's normal. There are so many levels of wrong associated with what she said to the boys that I can't even. Then she addressed the girls. Here is a picture of average breasts. Breasts are for feeding babies and they also look good. Mine don't look like that anymore because I've had two children. Yeah, she said that. The 60-minute presentation also neglected to address all parts of the female genitalia like clitoris, which was such a shame because she could have then editorialised the fuck out of that description. There's the clit. I really like it when people gently suck on it. But no. Okay, I'm kidding. But she could have at least mentioned its erectile function in a similar way to boys and also explained that arousal causes lubrication which prepares women for all that baby-making intercourse in the fucking first place. How hard is that? Not hard at all. But no, girls, you have boobs. A vagina. You bleed. You make babies. You wreck your boobs. No, you don't. No, you don't. But that's another fucking podcast. Um, I bet you can imagine the complaint letter I sent. They said they'd have a word to her about her embellishments to the script she's given, but also said that with only 60 minutes, they're pressed for time and they don't see the clitoris as being important and relevant to mention. But I'm like, I wrote back to them again. But you mentioned the three stages of labor, birth, the expulsion of the placenta. You're not preparing them to be obstetricians or midwives. You're telling them about how their bodies are developing and how conception occurs. 
if placenta is a more benign word than clitoris, then couldn't those birth details be presented during any science class? Mention mucus plugs if you want to. You can go nuts. Jesus. Uh, Anyway, I also complained about the way she briefly glossed over the concept of stranger danger. She said, if someone touches you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, tell an adult. That was about the extent of it. As someone who has experienced being molested as a child by someone who wasn't a stranger, I told them they need to be way more specific in their language about what is okay and what is not okay for adults to do to children. Don't leave it up to the kid to judge the level of inappropriateness or gauge their own discomfort. So much more to say about that at a later date. So yeah, to sum up, orgasms can just happen. Because that's what they do. They sometimes just happen. And yes, this is where my orgasmic labour contraction comes into it. What was that about? What indeed, what even is an orgasm? The timeless question that has vexed many scientists since the day they figured out the stalk wasn't real was why the fuck does female orgasm exist? It's tempting to bring everything to a close now with the simple statement, because it does. It's awesome. Get over it. Just enjoy yourselves, ladies, and sing. But I won't do that to you. I think it's reasonable to assume that most people know research into female sexuality is still stupidly new and inconclusive. For centuries, it was pretty much ignored, and for a good while there, horniness in women was seen as a mental illness known as hysteria. Doctors treated them with vibrator therapy. (laughs) I've been shaking my head about that for 25 years, because back then, the now defunct magazine I used to work for, Australian Women's Forum, did a story about the history of the vibrator, which was actually a medical instrument to save doctors' poor, tired hands from all the therapy they had to administer in relieving their patients. But since then, there have been movies and documentaries about it. It would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. Researchers and psychologists in the 50s, 60s and 70s kept coming up with different theories about orgasm. Clitoral and vaginal orgasm, sorry, clitoral and vaginal orgasm were seen as two different things. Freud even posited that the clitoral orgasm is the immature virgin virgin. Oh fuck, talk about your Freudian slip. When I'm talking about Freud, classic. Um Freud even posited that the clit orgasm is the immature version and the vaginal orgasm is the mature version. Then, in the 80s, the G-spot got named. Uh, In the 90s, Women's Forum did their own survey about female ejaculation. We also have new spots. The A-spot, the U-spot, the O-spot have all been identified. C-spot run. Out damn spot. I will get to all of those. But what my point is, an orgasm is an orgasm is an orgasm. Female orgasm has always been seen as a scientific afterthought because everyone seemed hell-bent on tying it to the singular act of copulation. Sex is intercourse. Intercourse makes babies. Survival of the species, yada yada. Let's leave human sentience out of this, shall we? 
The female sexual role was always seen as secondary in the reproductive equation to the males. The reasoning? Because he's the male and his sperm gets shot like an arrow through his mighty clever penis and it hits the ovum without any help from the female. Because babies don't get born unless the male does all of the heavy lifting and natural selecting, which comes with not only a necessary but more important, rationally explained, orgasm. Because as we know, the female does diddly squat but lie back and stare at the ceiling while it all happens. Sarcasm aside, women's orgasms have till recently been seen as an evolutionary echo or remnant of the males. Male is the default. Female is the other. You know, Adam's rib. Fuck off. With women's orgasm seen as some sort of happy accident, the mighty role of the penis and intercourse has always skewed the research about female orgasm. I conducted a recent social media poll asking people what they think of when I said the word sex, intercourse or anything involving orgasms. Roughly 60% said intercourse, which confounds me. By that definition, you can roll around in bed with someone for two hours, have all the orgasms, but if a penis in vagina thing doesn't happen, then it wasn't sex. Yeah. This is how deeply ingrained the mentality is around the penetration part of the thing being the main event, which is what brings about propaganda about women being slow to reach orgasms and men are fast. Here's another juicy stat which might surprise you. Set your stopwatch to the time it takes an impatient, horny man to wank himself to orgasm. Apparently it takes on average about four minutes. What if we compare it with a similarly impatient woman's average wank time span? What are we thinking? 20 minutes? That seems to be the magic number around which all common myths tie a bright pink bow. In truth, it's also about four minutes. On my most sexually frustrated day, I reckon I could beat that. Wouldn't be a great orgasm though. Let's face it, sometimes we just want an orgasm to release tension, relieve anxiety. Anxiety is also on the arousal spectrum. Seasoned wankers of all genders are well practiced at hurrying ourselves along. We know what internal muscles to flex, how to take that tension and really push it out. (laughs) So are men and women really so different? Let me ask male listeners, if I said that you and the love of your life could choose between always having a quickie with an orgasm that takes five minutes every time you've had sex, or you could instead enjoy prolonged, slowly building sensual arousal for 15 minutes or more resulting in explosive orgasms, which one would he choose? Which one would you choose, guys? Ladies, which one do you think your men would choose? Forget the unrealistic movies that have women shrieking with orgasm within 30 seconds of penetration. They're usually time-strapped to tell a big story in under two hours and sex is just there as a plot point. So stop letting yourself feel rushed. Instead, tell them to slow the fuck down because it's necessary. It's not optional. 
There is solid evolutionary evidence and cracking theories why female arousal builds differently to males and why orgasm is not just an accident, but it's, it's fucking essential. Episode 3 finally takes us to the jungle. Yay! Uh, because you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. I wanted to shove the bonobo research and my own personal data in this episode, but this one's gone on long enough and I don't want to rush. I want to take my time. I want to delay gratification. I'm setting a good example. So till next time, thank you for listening. If you want me to expand on any of the subtopics mentioned during this series, please hit me up with feedback. I'm doing my best to cover a lot of bases without being presumptuous or patronizing. It's really hard because I've lived and breathed this stuff for so long. I have lost most objectivity about what is and what isn't particularly common knowledge out there. I would love you to ask questions so I can do a question and answer podcasts. Just sound your trumpet. (laughs) I'm here for you. Whatever that means. Just kidding. Reach out to me via theeloquentintheroom.com or at theeloquentintheroom on Twitter or Instagram, as well as emailing me at theeloquentintheroom at gmail.com. Lastly, if you enjoy the podcast and you think someone else will too, please hit like, hit subscribe, leave a review, and do everything you can to point your friends at the eloquent in the room. Help me, help you, and anyone else who wants help. I want this podcast to be a freely available public resource, but I will need all the support I can get to keep it going. So what better way to sign off this week than to just say, love.
41% said trial and error.